Chapter Seven of the Story of Aristotle's Philosophy by Will Durant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Ethics and the Nature of Happiness. And yet, as Aristotle developed and young men crowded about him to be taught and formed, more and more his mind turned from the details of science to the larger and vaguer problems of conduct and character it came to him more clearly that above all questions of the physical world there loomed the question of questions what is the best life what is life's supreme good what is virtue how shall we find happiness and fulfilment he is realistically simple in his ethics his scientific training keeps him from the preaching of superhuman ideals and empty counsels of perfection in aristotle says santayana the conception of human nature is perfectly sound every ideal has a natural basis and everything natural has an ideal development aristotle begins by frankly recognizing that the aim of life is not goodness for its own sake but happiness for we choose happiness for itself and never with a view to anything further whereas we choose honour pleasure intellect because we believe that through them we shall be made happy but he realizes that to call happiness the supreme good is a mere truism what is wanted is some clearer account of the nature of happiness and the way to it he hopes to find this way by asking wherein man differs from other beings and by presuming that man's happiness will lie in the full functioning of this specifically human quality now the peculiar excellence of man is his power of thought it is by this that he surpasses and rules all other forms of life and as the growth of this faculty has given him his supremacy so we may presume its development will give him fulfilment and happiness the chief condition of happiness then barring certain physical prerequisites is the life of reason the specific glory and power of man virtue or rather excellence will depend on clear judgment self-control symmetry of desire artistry of means footnote the word excellence is probably the fittest translation of the greek arete usually mistranslated virtue the reader will avoid misunderstanding plato and aristotle if where translators write virtue he will substitute excellence ability or capacity the greek arete is the roman virtus both imply a masculine sort of excellence ares god of war weir a male classical antiquity conceived virtue in terms of man just as medieval christianity conceived it in terms of woman and footnote it is not the possession of the simple man nor the gift of innocent intent but the achievement of experience in the fully developed man yet there is a road to it a guide to excellence which may save many detours and delays it is the middle way the golden mean the qualities of character can be arranged in triads in each of which the first and last qualities will be extremes and vices and the middle quality a virtue or an excellence so between cowardice and rashness is courage 
between stinginess and extravagance is liberality between sloth and greed is ambition between humility and pride is modesty between secrecy and loquacity honesty between moroseness and buffoonery good humour between quarrelsomeness and flattery friendship between hamlet's indecisiveness and quixote's impulsiveness is self-control right then in ethics or conduct is not different from right in mathematics or engineering it means correct fit what works best to the best result the golden mean however is not like the mathematical mean an exact average of two precisely calculable extremes it fluctuates with the collateral circumstances of each situation and discovers itself only to mature and flexible reason excellence is in art won by training and habituation we do not act rightly because we have virtue or excellence but we rather have these because we have acted rightly these virtues are formed in man by his doing the actions we are what we repeatedly do excellence then is not an act but a habit the good of man is a working of the soul in the way of excellence in a complete life for as it is not one swallow or one fine day that makes a spring so it is not one day or a short time that makes a man blessed and happy youth is the age of extremes if the young commit a fault it is always on the side of excess and exaggeration the great difficulty of youth and of many of youth's elders is to get out of one extreme without falling into its opposite for one extreme easily passes into the other whether through overcorrection or elsewise insincerity doth protest too much and humility hovers on the precipice of conceit those who are consciously of one extreme will give the name of virtue not to the mean but to the opposite extreme sometimes this is well for if we are conscious of erring in one extreme we should aim at the other and so we may reach the middle position as men do in straightening bent timber but unconscious extremists look upon the golden mean as the greatest vice they expel toward each other the man in the middle position the brave man is called rash by the coward and cowardly by the rash man and in other cases accordingly so in modern politics the liberal is called conservative and radical by the radical and the conservative it is obvious that this doctrine of the mean is the formulation of a characteristic attitude which appears in almost every system of greek philosophy plato had had it in mind when he called virtue harmonious action socrates when he identified virtue with knowledge the seven wise men had established the tradition by engraving on the temple of apollo at delphi the motto medanagan nothing in excess perhaps as nietzsche claims all these were attempts of the greeks to check their own violence and impulsiveness of character more truly they reflected the greek feeling that passions are not of themselves vices but the raw material of both vice and virtue according as they function in excess and disproportion or in measure in harmony but the golden mean says our matter-of-fact philosopher 
is not all of the secret of happiness we must have too a fair share of worldly goods poverty makes one stingy and grasping while possessions give one that freedom from care and greed which is the source of aristocratic ease and charm the noblest of these external aids to happiness is friendship indeed friendship is more necessary to the happy than to the unhappy for happiness is multiplied by being shared it is more important than justice for when men are friends justice is unnecessary but when men are just friendship is still a boon a friend is one soul in two bodies yet friendship implies few friends rather than many he who has many friends has no friend and to be a friend to many people in the way of perfect friendship is impossible fine friendship requires duration rather than fitful intensity and this implies stability of character it is to altered character that we must attribute the dissolving kaleidoscope of friendship and friendship requires equality for gratitude gives it at best a slippery basis benefactors are commonly held to have more friendship for the objects of their kindness than these for them the account of the matter which satisfies most persons is that the one are debtors and the other creditors and the debtors wish their creditors out of the way while the creditors are anxious that their debtors should be preserved aristotle rejects this interpretation he prefers to believe that the greater tenderness of the benefactor is to be explained on the analogy of the artist's affection for his work or the mother's for her child we love that which we have made and yet though external goods and relationships are necessary to happiness its essence remains within us in rounded knowledge and clarity of soul surely since pleasure is not the way that road is a circle as socrates phrased the coarser epicurean idea we scratch that we may itch and itch that we may scratch nor can a political career be the way for therein we walk subject to the whims of the people and nothing is so fickle as the crowd no happiness must be a pleasure of the mind and we may trust it only when it comes from the pursuit or the capture of truth the operation of the intellect aims at no end beyond itself and finds in itself the pleasure which stimulates it to further operation and since the attributes of self-sufficiency unweariedness and capacity for rest plainly belong to this occupation in it must lie perfect happiness aristotle's ideal man however is no mere metaphysician he does not expose himself needlessly to danger since there are few things for which he cares sufficiently but he is willing in great crises to give even his life knowing that under certain conditions it is not worth while to live he is of a disposition to do men service though he is ashamed to have a service done to him to confer a kindness is a mark of superiority to receive one is a mark of subordination he does not take part in public displays he is open in his dislikes and preferences he talks and acts frankly because of his contempt for men and things he is never fired with admiration since there is nothing great in his eyes 
he cannot live in complacence with others except it be a friend complacence is the characteristic of a slave he never feels malice and always forgets and passes over injuries he is not fond of talking it is no concern of his that he should be praised or that others should be blamed he does not speak evil of others even of his enemies unless it be to themselves his carriage is sedate his voice deep his speech measured he is not given to hurry for he is concerned about only a few things he is not prone to vehemence for he thinks nothing very important a shrill voice and hasty steps come to a man through care he bears the accidents of life with dignity and grace making the best of his circumstances like a skilful general who marshals his limited forces with all the strategy of war he is his own best friend and takes delight in privacy whereas the man of no virtue or ability is his own worst enemy and is afraid of solitude such is the superman of aristotle End of chapter seven